Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hello! Welcome back, listeners, to a real heavy case. (laughs) Super, super heavy. It is, yeah. But it feels fitting for the time. Yes, unfortunately. Mm. So I think our flow is going to be we're going to jump right back into it. I and think that then makes sense. we'll probably spend some time at the end with some casual banter for the folks who enjoy that. If you need a, cal- a palate cleanser <laughs> after some of this heaviness, uh, it will probably have a, a lighter chat to end us off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,. I want to get right back to what's going on. We left our living victim, Sanford Clark, in really dire straits. And again, probably emotionally at the lowest that he could be. Mm -hmm. He's been forced to participate in the killing of a young child. After this happens, you might think that maybe Stuart felt like he had made a slim escape and maybe would stop killing people, torturing, but no. In spite of his mother's displeasure at his behavior, he continued, and and not only continued, but two months later, he is back on the prowl. So in May of 1928, he goes back and is doing the same routine that, that he had done so many times before. And he finds two brothers, Lewis and Nelson Winslow. And they were 10 years old and 12 years old. And they had just left some activity with their family. And they were left to get home on their own. Again, as was super common at this time, children were given a tremendous amount of autonomy. And for the most part, it was safe. But... Stuart had come to them, had picked them up again under some pretense and taken them to the farm. He, again, we don't need to go into gory detail. He was a sexual sadist. He tortured them. um, He raped them and he held them captive over a period of days. After six days, he kind of had tired of them. And he decided that it was time to kill them and then probably in his mind move on to new victims. Mm -hmm. So again, based on the last uh, murder that he had been involved in, I think he derived some pleasure from the suffering of Sanford at being forced to participate. And so it wasn't just enough or it wasn't even totally about disposing of witnesses that was part of it but Mm -hmm. part of it was the pain inflicted on the victims and then this other victim sanford the pain the mental and psychological pain inflicted on him of being involved so he forces sanford to come to the to the coop and he kills one boy and he makes sanford kill the other boy and he kind of disposes of them in the same way. So shallow graves somewhere out on this huge piece of land that, that he has. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in July, just about when a new cycle would be starting, he's kind of on a two-month cycle here, just about when a new cycle would be starting, Sanford's sister, his older sister, he was one of, I think, seven, uh-huh. his older sister decides to come and visit the farm. So now all of this time, Stuart's parents essentially know what's going on and they're allowing Stuart to do whatever the fuck to Sanford. They are fully aware that Sanford is not going to school, that he's being worked Mm -hmm. um, and at best case abused in that way and emotionally abused, but probably had a pretty decent idea of other things. Now, Stuart had allowed Sanford to write letters home, but he dictated what would be in those letters. Uh-huh. So Sanford physically wrote the letters. They were in his hand, but it was Stuart's kind of coaching, and he viewed everything that was sent out. Um, again, Sanford was a prisoner. He had no money. Yeah. He had no transportation. He had no communication. So everything that went out, he controlled. So at a certain point, the sister just basically had a bad vibe about what was going on. The letters didn't sound like Sanford. She just had a feeling that something was not right. Mm -hmm. So she goes down um, to visit and she appears at the farm. And now this kind of throws everything. It's unannounced. This throws everything into kind of chaos. And so at this point, Stuart tells Sanford, if you tell her anything and I mean anything, I will kill her, I will kill her children, like starts now threatening people that Sanford loves. Uh-huh. So it's not enough to just threaten him. He's now threatening the people in his life who he loves. So Sanford is going along with this. He's scared to death, obviously. He's seen what this monster is capable of. And now- And his grandma. And his grandma, right. And- now, she she has a car, but she's also trapped here. And, you know, S- Stuart's a, kind of a big strapping guy and, you know, a young lady and a still teen boy. So he is not saying anything. One night after Stuart goes to bed, Jesse, Sanford's sister, comes in and talks to Sanford and is like, what the fuck is going on? Because Sanford's got bruises and marks i mean he looks like Mm -hmm. hell he's undernourished he's dirty like all of these things she's like what is going on and he tries to not tell her he really does try because he's trying to protect her Mm -hmm. but she finally kind of gets it out of him and he he says what's been going on and he mentions the murders at this point Like, now Sanford thinks they're all dead. You know, both of them are dead. But Jesse, to her credit, said and did nothing at that point. She kept pretending like everything was fine. Which, as a sister, I mean, that had to have been the hardest thing for her in the world. She says to Sanford, come on, tonight, let's go. Let's get out of here. But Sanford is so afraid. He's afraid that he will be able to hunt them down and kill them before they can get to help. That Well, and probably like you'll go to jail for the rest of your life and everyone will hate you. Like it's probably such 
manipulation, gaslighting, torture. Totally. And, like, you know, what was going on out there was so fucking surreal and awful. Like, would people even believe him? Like, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine having the frame of mind of a kid who grows up in a world where there aren't streaming movies. There are no super, mm-hmm. like, you know, even comic books. I don't know what the kind of tenor of them at that point would be. So some of these things that are happening would be beyond the imagination, I think, of a child at that time. Yeah. So what they do do is they continue to play like everything is normal. And Jesse leaves Sanford there and returns to Canada, which, again, as a sister, can you even imagine what that must be like? Absolutely not. So she goes back to Canada and she goes to an American consulate and she reports the crimes and she then goes to another agency and reports that Sanford is in the U.S. illegally and he's not going to school. So, I mean, Ah. this is the kind of world it was at this time, like being truant would have been like that triggers things if you just claim that a normal appearing man is a monster then that could that could go either way you know now investigators are on the case so stewart kind of knew the jig was up at this point even though she didn't make a stink sanford didn't leave he just kind of knows like Mm -hmm. this is probably the beginning of the end So he's already got wheels in motion for escaping. But the authorities come more quickly than he expects. And so they get a knock on the door one day, you know, open up. It's the whoever, some something official. And Stuart threatens Sanford and says, stall them while I get away. And Sanford, again, he does it. And Uh so Stuart says... I'll be hiding out in the tree line, and if I see you talking to them, I'll shoot you from out there with his rifle. So, I mean, again, like, was that possible? No, he's probably focused on leaving, but, you know, Sanford is scared to death of him. So, Stuart makes his escape, and he goes into L.A., and he gets his mom, who, at this point, abandons her husband to go on the lamb with Stuart. Again, something not right. <laughs> and you I think? wonder, <laughs> I mean, it's just a supposition, but the cycles of abuse, maybe she herself was a pedophile. Like, I mean, yeah, it's hard to know. Clearly something was very, very wrong there. And so meanwhile, back at the farm, Sanford is questioned for a very long time, and it's hours before Sanford feels safe enough with Stuart gone to open up and tell the police anything. So initially, he's like, nothing, everything's fine, everything's fine. But then once they kind of take him in and he's feeling protected and they're giving him assurances, then the whole truth begins to come out. At this point, you know, the police start into investigative mode. They go to the farm and they find they find bodies where 
Sanford said they would find, and they find bone fragments. And so they start finding evidence. This isn't a tall tale. Mm-hmm. This is real. Um, and they put out, you know, a warrant for the mother and son. So at this point, Sanford is kind of taken into protective custody interviews, getting the whole story out, identifying kind of the mechanics of what happened and when the timeline. And Stuart and his mother, Louise, are captured in Canada, in British Columbia, Mm -hmm. where they had gone back to. Now, they are kept in custody in Canada for a period of time. Initially, they kind of denied. Then Louise basically does what you would expect Louise to do, and she claims complete responsibility for all of the murders. Like, her son did nothing. It was all her. She's going to protect her baby to the bitter end. It just is baffling. Sorry. I Like, <laughs> Kirsten's just watching me over the Zoom, shaking my head no silently. But I was like, <laughs> I don't have words. It's just horrific and unbelievable and insane. Yeah. So also, I mean, Stewart had been raised in this bubble of he can do no wrong. He gets everything he wants. His mom basically fixes everything for him that ever goes wrong. So he's so cocky. He's sitting and saying to investigators, like, you're not going to get me. I'll never be extradited. I'll never be convicted. My mother will fix this. Like, I mean, he's just, so I think a lot of like narcissism and Uh like delusional arrogance. And, but in fact, you know, they had a lot of physical evidence at the farm. They couldn't necessarily attach it to particular victims at that point, but they had bodies and they had witnesses and they had testimony. Yeah. They were extradited back into the U.S., and in January of 1929, justice was swift back then. Uh, Stewart was convicted of four murders, so the unidentified Mexican child, Walter Collins, and Lewis and Nelson Winslow. I don't know if he was tried on all of the multiple rapes and and attacks, but I mean, knowing what we know now about how the system works for victims today, my thinking is no. His mother was also convicted, and she was sentenced to life in prison. Uh Uh-huh. And Stewart was, was sentenced to hang for his crimes. He was hanged... Fairly quickly after, and maybe ironically, his last words when he was at the at the hangman's noose were, no, don't. Mm-hmm. So nothing kind of, you know, profound there, just that kind of pleading that he maybe had enjoyed putting his victims through was kind of his last experience on this earth. His mother, surprisingly, was released after 11 years for for eye-roll, eye-roll, eye-roll good behavior. But I'm happy to report that she died a short four years later. Hell yeah. Now, the best part of this whole very sad, very grim story is that Sanford went on 
to have the most normal life I think that would probably be possible. He Mm -hmm. returned to Canada uh, to his family. He served in World War II with honors. He married and he had two children and seems to have lived a full life after this unimaginable horror show. That's incredible that he got to have a, I mean, who's to say what's happy and what's not, but like a decent rest of his story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one one very small bright spot and all of that. And then, you know, it was such a infamous case um, and such a gruesome case that the town of Wineville actually changed its name because it had become so synonymous with this really gruesome crime. So now if you decide that you want to learn more and go on some kind of gruesome murder tour, you would be looking to visit Mira Loma. Wineville is no longer a thing. Can you call it a gruesome murder tour if you're doing it through Zillow? No. (laughs) I mean, and also, I don't know. Everybody has different lines for this stuff, and we've talked about this before. I Part of our kind of central thesis when we started this podcast is that a certain part of curiosity about these things is just human nature, and I don't think that people should be judged for being curious about the dark and twisted side of humanity. I think that's part of how we make sense of things. So, you know, where is the line between, you know, kind of normal sense-making curiosity and being ghoulish? I don't know. Everyone has that line. For me, like, visiting sites of things like this, I've done it. You know, I did the Jack the Ripper tour when I was in London. And, you know, it's interesting. It's history. It's a very kind of dark history. But, you know, we have Civil War battlefields that are enshrined and people, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of people visit them. To me, it's not really all that different. It's trying to understand human history, just this particular niche part of it. Yeah. God, what a terrible story. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, it's really the facts of the case are difficult to believe that it's real it sounds like a horror movie well not in the horror movie but some of the facts on the culture side not equally strange but are also pretty wild Mm. Mm. so before going full end you know movies that type of culture yeah to finish up christine collins's story Mm -hmm. so very, very unsurprisingly, Christine did not believe the police that Walter was one of the victims in Wineville. Mm. I mean, how could she ever trust the LAPD again? Right. And there's got to be a part of your psyche that wants to push that thought away because what he suffered was unimaginable as a parent to think of your child going through that. Mm-hmm. And his entire body was not found i think Mm -hmm. they connected him through fragments as well as clothing fragments Mm -hmm. so she just held out hope that he was alive she continued her search she Mm -hmm. never gave up christine became 
the first woman in more than three decades to receive permission to visit a serial killer the day before he was executed at San Quentin. Wow. So in October 1930, 19 and 30. <laughs> <laughs> in October 1930, maybe that's how you'd say it in old timey days. <laughs> the year was 1930. <laughs> anyway, a little brevity in my mistake. But So Stewart sent her a telegram saying that he lied. And he denied that Walter was among his victims. He promised to tell her the truth if she came in person. I mean, that's that sadist part that never went away. Mm-hmm. And so Christine was also not going to put up with bullshit. I mean, that's how she became the only woman, at least at that point in over 30 years of San Quentin, to get permission to go see the killer before the execution. And of course... Upon her arrival, he was quoted as saying, I don't want to see you. I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent. End quote. What a punk ass. Yeah, such a fucker. I mean, if hell's real, I hope it's real bad for him. Yeah. So he eventually, you know, did say that he didn't kill Walter. And I don't know that that's true. But Christine believed him. It was kind of her only choice. And... It was, you know, kind of bolstered five years after Stewart's execution. Another boy that he was accused of killing was found alive. Mm. So she just had these things. I mean, there's no way in hell she could ever trust the police again. I know, but I mean, Sanford confessed yeah. and he was he was involved. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. That, but to her, the rest of her life had the hope that he was alive. I mean, I a thousand percent understand like as a mom where she would have been coming from. Yeah. And I, I think he was definitely one of the victims. Mm-hmm. But shifting into the more traditional culture side of things, the first piece I found was from 1951. Uh, the big imposter was an episode of the radio program at the time. Dragnet. Hmm where a boy disappears in L.A. and is seemingly found about nine months later in Dayton, Ohio, when a runaway is caught uh, by police and claims to be the missing boy. So, in the story, eventually brought to L.A., reunited, air quotes, with the missing boy's grandfather, but eventually they realize it's not him, blah, blah, blah. So it's this story just with a bit of shifting. Mm-hmm. Oh, even in the Dragnet plot. Four months later, the body of the actual missing boy is found buried at a farm on the outskirts of Riverside, California. Mm. So, like, it is it is this story. Yeah. Uh, in 1952, one year after the radio play, Dragnet moved to television. Mm-hmm. And this story is also one of the first episodes of the Dragnet TV show. Well, so, there's so many creepy elements to it because there's the crime itself, with it, which is horrific. And hopefully they watered that down for mm-hmm. TV and radio. But also the, having this strange child in yes. your home because kids can be creepy as fuck. I mean, you know, in certain lighting, they're, you know, joyous sunbeams, but in another in another light through another lens they're just creepy creepy especially just random kids who (laughs) yeah and 
I don't get into it in the in my notes, but like there's a lot of Hallmark movies, a lot of horror movies, a lot of thrillers that are pulling on this trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this isn't the only time this has happened. So it's not like a one for one. I can 100% say this is a direct reference to this case. But essentially in the grander scheme of ripple effects, all of those things connect back to this story and stories like it. Right. And there's just something about that that strikes a very deep chord in the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And so for listeners who are unfamiliar with Dragnet, it's probably the most influential police procedural crime drama in American history. Yeah, I mean, it's the grandmama of them all. Yeah, and every episode opens with the narration, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent, end quote. And I bet there are a lot of people out there who have heard that phrase but don't know where it comes from i heard it again and again and again as my dad watched black and white episodes of dragnet (laughs) in our house (laughs) but clearly i mean the ripped from the headlines law and order is a direct spiritual child of this oh yeah 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 so i i don't spend a lot of time uh pondering that but just know like so many of police things go tv shows go back to dragnet Mm -hmm. and uh the story of this case was one of the first episodes of the tv show Mm -hmm. wild so many decades later and i'll have i'll have more on that in a bit but many decades later in 2008 Mm -hmm. changeling the mystery crime drama directed and produced and scored for some reason by Clint Eastwood. It was written by J. Michael Strakinsky uh, was released. And it's of, of course, well, of course to me, maybe not to <laughs> the <laughs> listeners, but this movie starred Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. And my own personal anecdote about it, being a queer young adult in Mississippi, I have this vivid memory of going to Blockbuster to rent this movie because of Angelina Jolie. Hmm. The employee told me not to rent it and that it was incredibly boring. (laughs) And I said, I don't care about that. (laughs) And I rented it anyway because I looked and it has good reviews and it like, I'll I'll get into all of that. But of course it was great. (laughs) It was a really good movie. And it was another formative story in that constellation we always talk about of my personal inciting incidents. Mm -hmm. So I was older. This wasn't my childhood, but renting this movie is so tied to that person telling me not to rent it because it was so boring and then loving it. And it was like a microcosm for how I viewed myself as an outsider in Mississippi. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know, hyperbole, but those were my feelings. My feelings only at the time. No, I mean, it makes sense, though. So, really good. And Clint Eastwood gets lots of credits. He was a multi-hyphenate on the movie, but it really begins with Strakinsky, the writer, mm-hmm. who must be a true crime buff. <laughs> and he essentially saved this story. Mm. He was working as a journalist and special correspondent for, well, it's defunct now, but the TV Cable Week magazine. 
So that was a thing. But he was a journalist in general. Mm -hmm. And 1983, when he first encountered Christine's story, he was contacted by one of his sources at L.A. City Hall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the source told him that officials were planning to burn numerous archive documents, among them something he should see. (gasps) So the source had discovered a transcript of the city council welfare hearings concerning Christine and the aftermath of her son's disappearance. So, wait, they were going to digitize them and then burn them? No. They They were going to put them on microfiche and then burn them. (laughs) They were to burn them. What the fuck? End of story. It was 83. That was from the 20s and 30s. It had been over 50 years. Case was closed. Get rid of it. Oh, my God. So, unsurprisingly, (laughs) Strakinsky became fascinated with the case. (laughs) He spent years researching the case through archived criminal, county courthouse, city hall, city morgue, any record he could get to, he was researching Christine Collins. My God. So over the years and eventually decades, he said he collected around 6,000 pages of documentation on Christine, Walter, the Wineville murders, and he just had this trove of information about this unbelievable story. Yeah. And he couldn't figure out how to tell it. So taking a little bit of a back step, Dragnet did not have anything about Christine being imprisoned by the LAPD and tortured. That part was erased. I mean, of course, because, I mean, we've talked about it so many times. The police procedural is a very big part of, like, the marketing campaign for the paramilitaristic police system that we have. So why would they mention that? Yes. So (laughs) over the decades, he had turned to TV writing just in general. And after gathering all of those thousands of pages of information, he finally wrote the story in 2006. Wow. After first starting with that first source in 1983. That's amazing. The script is almost completely drawn from thousands of pages of documentation. And so, for your cocktail party banter, the story was so hard to believe that Strakinsky placed newspaper clippings into physical copies of the script to remind people that it was a true story. (gasps) Wow. Yeah, I have a quote from him about this as well. He said, quote, The story is just so bizarre that you need something to remind you that I'm not making this stuff up. So it seemed important to me to put in those clippings because you reach the part of the story where you go, come on, he has got to have gone off the rails with this. Turn the page and there is indeed an article confirming it, which is why in terms of writing the script, I hewed very closely to the facts. The story is already extraordinary enough. Right. Whoa. Well, because it's that thing of, you know, if you were to write this, people wouldn't believe it. And this is exactly that situation. If you were to write this as fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we have the adage, truth is stranger than fiction. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, incredibly good movie. Highly recommend it. And the movie is very fact accurate. 
So interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to watch it. I don't love Angelina Jolie as a human being, but I will watch it because it sounds very interesting. And I love that backstory. I mean, oh, my gosh. I could see. I mean, you basically go down a rabbit hole, and he's someone who had connections and was in that world as a writer anyway. I mean, oh, my gosh. So – I just want to know what has happened. Has he donated them to a library? Has he digitized them? Like, Oh, I wish I had that answer. And um, how many other cases were actually buried like that, you know, that now are lost to time because no one made that phone call? Well, I had this in my notes. Well, let me, I'll, I'll get there in just a second. Mm. So some of the like, acclaim or whatever it premiered at con in Mm -hmm. 2008 it went on to earn 113 million at the box office like another 20 million from dvd purchase Mm -hmm. uh it received three nominations at the academy awards best actress for angelina best art direction and best cinematography it received eight nominations at the bafta the british academy film awards Mm -hmm. so successful critically financially So all of that in mind and the conversation you started, it's like, this is an unbelievable story. I just have to wonder. Christine's story itself, fascinating. It takes Mm -hmm. place in LA. Uh, You know, there were those two episodes of Dragnet, but there was a much bigger story about what happened to Christine. And then nothing in the home of Hollywood. (laughs) I really do wonder... Like, if a journalist source had not told him about Christine's records being destroyed, would this story have been fully swept under the rug? And so, tinfoil hat, I'm a person who thinks this was purposefully covered up to protect the LAPD and the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. And clearly it was a media sensation. What happened to Walter? People cared at the time about the imposter. But even Mm -hmm. the imposter is one thing. It's Christine's actual story, the locking her up. Right, right, right. So no movie, no awareness whatsoever in L.A., in Hollywood. I don't buy it. So I put a question in here for you of like, where where do you fall with this lack of media? I mean, it's got to be intentional because we don't see gaps like this, you know? Not for, I mean, a serial killer, a yeah. horrific serial killer, plus... I mean, this story is a- incredible and, like, the the literal, like, it's so incredible it seems not real. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think part of it is just that there's not a whole lot of appetite for people to see things about boys, not I, children, being tortured, raped, and murdered. Like, you know, women, yes, absolutely, but children slash white boy children like not not most people's favorite topic so there's that but then also the the collins story i mean they they had there is every reason to push that under the rug and Mm -hmm. i mean we know now how corrupt the la police department and the city, you know, not just the police, <laughs> yeah. but the city, the all the city government has been for a really long time. So 
yeah, to have something like this have so little in the way of pop culture, media, you know. But I think there is a saying or a truism that Hollywood kind of doesn't like to be the subject of its own output, you know, too much, mm-hmm. unless it's very rosy. So, yeah, I don't think that's far-fetched at all. Yeah. And so Changeling comes out in 2008. Mm-hmm. Then 2009, there's a Criminal Minds that features a character based on Stuart. They called him the Hollow Creek Killer. And that 2015 investigation Discovery did an Evil Ken episode about the murders. Mm-hmm. But, like, I wasn't even finding unsolved mysteries or yeah. i mean i guess technically walter was probably solved but like even even the like regular investigation discovery yeah. oxygen true tv like i wasn't even finding that stuff with this case mm-hmm. like things didn't even start to trickle out until after the movie which of course was found because of that one source saying they were going to burn the records yeah which is crazy but yeah, yeah. i mean this is bizarrely underreported. I mean, there's still a a fair chunk of pop culture about it, but for something this gruesome, this, you know, publicized in its day, it's very strange. Mm -hmm. And then American Horror Story Hotel had Mm -hmm. a storyline that touched on it also in 2015. But that, Mm -hmm. that was it in terms of culture that I could find. It's wild. But, you know, in a lot of ways... The serial killer doesn't fit some of the stereotypes about serial killers in that, you know, he looked normal. He came from a quote unquote good family. You know, he wasn't someone who raised alarm bells unless you got to know him very well or unless he set his sights on you. So I think people don't know what to do with that. I mean, we come up against this in a lot of different ways, but this whole idea of not looking like a monster and what do monsters look like? And are they even monsters? Do we even want to mythologize it to that mm-hmm. point that we call them monsters? Like they're just bad, evil people who do bad, evil things. Well, and then I think you hit the nail on the head too, like another dissertation or thesis topic. People can be all about it. Media can be all about it when it's, uh, so air quotes for, cause you can't, see me but like air quotes dead women yeah especially dead women who are sex workers mm-hmm. where and again you're absolutely right like on the base level of like anything with children it like holds a different mm-hmm. place in sort of the rings of hell mm-hmm. but like there probably is something about i mean think of how many pieces of true crime media it's like fully exploitative about like the nude actresses and how they yeah. portray women in those ways. I think there's like a real sexploitation to it as well. Absolutely. Well, because even if you think of it as, you know, a lot of the cases that we have covered when we're talking about preying on sex workers, we're not talking about Dorothy Stratton. We're talking about people who are forced into sex work because of life circumstances and other factors in their lives, drug addiction, you know, family of origin that is violent or unsafe. But to look at things, you know, people just love a sexy, blonde, dead hooker. Like, I mean, that's 
a trope, but it's just true. You know, people can't get enough of that. But no one wants to see, you know, the reality of it, which is women and men who are down on their luck and involved in sex work for survival and their ends are not sex. And I, you know, gross, like whatever punctuation for what I'm about to say is gross, but like they're not sexy kind of murder victims. It's sad. It's squalid. It's gruesome, but you know, people want their murders sexy and, and like glamorous and female for the most part. And then you get into the, another piece of migrant workers, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure uh, migrant workers in America in 2022 have a lot of horrific conditions and predators in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, like United States structure and immigration predators, as well as just straight on physical and sexual predators to this day. Right. And I think that's why, I mean, they suspected that he killed up to 20 boys, but it's like, well, the official number's three. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is unknown or discredited, which happens with a lot of killers, but I think it's particularly notable that Mm -hmm. the the cared about victims are like white. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, that's just a sad theme and everything that we cover, but I feel like it's the kind of thing that you can't say too often because it still is impacting cases and people today. You mm-hmm. know, it's so important to always underscore that, that our society and the structures that it builds like police and court systems care about some lives more than others. And that's why Black Lives Matter is a thing. Not because other lives don't matter, but that is assumed. Like white lives matter is assumed. But we talk about the ones that it's not assumed and it's not true in a lot of cases. Think of like the number of cases you could offhandedly name about like white children Mm-hmm. and national, international media coverage, media attention. And of course, of course, there are lots of white kids that also have horrific things happen to them that don't get, don't make the news. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I can think of a single child of color case off like the top of my head that has been all over the TV, all over Nancy Grace, all over, right? you know, this sort of like, TV churn and burn TV news slash court stuff. Like, really, I'm talking about Nancy Grace and that whole yeah, yeah, yeah. genre. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I can think of a single child of color. Right. Well, and I mean, to go even beyond that, think outside of the very narrow definition, too, of idealized white children so how many were autistic how many like had mental health struggles how many were fat how many like have other disabilities like you know they just don't make great wanted or like not wanted but great lost posters like it's a it's such a problem and children of color i mean LGBTQIA children are essentially throwaways. Like, oh, yeah, that's a runaway. Oh, you know, like, it's, yeah, it's awful. 
and the white kids that are on the news, they're never poor to lower class. Yeah, no. They're middle, upper class. They're attractive. They're thin. They're, like, you know, outgoing and everybody loved them. I mean, that's what sells newspapers and clicks. Yeah. All the way down to the Lindbergh, baby. I mean, this is nothing new. Yeah, it's definitely not new. And and it's a reflection of our society and our values. You know, it's not about the cases that there's anything intrinsic to it. That's just holding a mirror up to our values as a society. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, it's gross. But, you know, we call all of that out because, again, this is nothing new. It's still happening. It's still a problem. And... We need to be aware of it when we talk about cases because it hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. And I think examine more. I mean, yes, there are police officers that do good, Mm -hmm. but like our, not our specifically, but like the media and the narratives just blind believing of any press release from a police department mm-hmm. i mean we see it with the school shooting in texas like the the police have lied about every single step of the journey mm-hmm. or like with ahmad a- abri his case like the police knew what happened it right. wasn't until somebody leaked the video to the public that those people were arrested like the police are consistently fucking mm-hmm. up and prosecutors <laughs> and prosecutors yes yeah so just remember like of course there are good police people or at least people who are police that occasionally do good but like our our blind trust and system from things like dragnet from things like law and order from this like you know 70 80 year old propaganda machine of mm-hmm. police media mm-hmm It's the same every Halloween about razor blades and stuff and candy. It's like, why do we report these things that we can prove are false just because the police say it? Right. Well, and the thing is, is this whole idea about criticizing our government and we shouldn't criticize, but it's like you criticize and you try to improve the things that you love, not the things you don't give a shit about. And it's the same thing with the justice system. I mean, are there countries in the world that have a worse justice system than us? Yeah, I'm sure there are. And ours can be better, and it needs Mm -hmm. to be better. And we say so because we care. Yeah, holding ourselves accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because all the good people have to do something to see change. Well, truly an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so sad. But again, I hang on to this idea of Sanford going on to have a good life. And his sister, Jessie, who was frankly like a fucking badass. I mean, Mm -hmm. to leave your brother behind because you know strategically that's what you have to do. And then you go and you know, you know, as a woman, you know there are certain things that are going to get attention and certain things that are not. Mm -hmm. And you have the wherewithal to be like, listen, he's not there legally and he's not going to school. (laughs) Like of all the shit that was happening to him, he's not going to school. And that's what like good on her and, and hero right there. I think it's telling that she didn't go to the grandparents. Mm -hmm. Very telling. Yeah. There was something rotten in Denmark and everyone knew it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, damn. I know at the start I said we would talk about, like, 
happier or lighter stuff, but I don't even know what we could say. <laughs> yeah, this is a rough one. Oh, I know what we can talk about. Our one-year anniversary. <gasps> Yay! How in the hell? <laughs> I I was actually listening to another podcast this morning that they were like t- celebrating their three-year anniversary Mm -hmm. and they're like we're probably in the top one percent because so many podcasts fail after five episodes really is that the kind of number well i well the numbers we were looking at where our podcast is listed in the top 10 percent of all podcasts yeah which i'm i'm taking that to mean that we are very high quality and have high quality listeners and not that there's like a shit ton of garbage out there <laughs> that's how i'm choosing to take that <laughs> i mean the fact that at this point we have over 200 people every episode just consistently tuning into us yeah i i i thought we would have like 15 <laughs> I know. It's amazing. It really is amazing. And it's not the one-year anniversary episode yet, but as we build to that, I just want to say thank you so much to our listeners. I mean, we love that you listen and send us your feedback. We want to improve. And And send us your ideas if you've got fun episode ideas we haven't covered yet, whatever it might be. I mean, I think that probably is the community aspect is maybe an area we continue to grow as we move forward but we we got to hear from y'all too about like what that could look like or what it should look like or even just share your thoughts and stories and we can build episodes from there too yeah what should year two look like maybe i'll do a poll on social media but yeah this was heavy (laughs) again we have (laughs) We have resources available in our episode notes that you can go through and always take care of yourself. Absolutely. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Totally, totally, totally. I'm just going to start saying something new now after a year. <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. Yes. Woo. Goodbye. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 